0: And the people's devising of vain thing. Now, right? What? Why? I mean, does that not speak to right now? Why are the nations in an uproar? What's up? What's going on with this world in which we live? We'll come back to that. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to take refuge in You this morning. Oh Lord, not out of fear for the world around us, but we recognize that You are our refuge. You are, Lord Jesus, our peace. You are the source of strength and comfort, the source of of protection, the place of all wisdom. We come before you because we do live in bizarre times. We live in a world that's raging and we come, Lord, to hear from you. And I pray, Father, for the most ardent believer, the person who has lived years and years following You with deep passion and desire and a hunger for Your Word. I pray for that person this morning. I pray for the person who's just not even sure if they have faith. I pray for the one who may be here visiting who really doesn't believe in this stuff. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that You would make Yourself known to all of us, to those who don't know You, those who think they know you, and to those who long to know you more, would you reveal your heart and yourself, in Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray, amen. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. The first place that many people turn to in the Bible, whether they understand the Scriptures or not, whether they come with faith or not, the first place often tends to be the Psalms. And people think or realize that there's something of the Psalms, there's something of comfort there, there's, there's peace there, there's poetry there that is encouraging. And so strong or weak of faith, joyful or sorrowful, confident or insecure, people turn to the Psalms. We understand something about this book, that the Psalms are songs of and for the heart. They really are personal. They get personal. We hear, as David writes in his many Psalms, we hear his struggles, we hear his doubts, we hear his anger. And we hear that from all the Psalm writers, and there are many. 150 Psalms that are organized together in, in five books. And if you look through your Bible, most of your Bibles have those books uh, set forth. You have book one, and then you see Psalm one, and that runs all the way through Psalm 41. Then you'll see book two that picks up in Psalm 42. You'll see book 3 that picks up in Psalm 73. Book 4 picks up in Psalm 90. And then finally, book 5 begins Psalm 107 and runs to the end of the book. It's interesting. Five books within the Psalms like five books of Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Delich writes that Moses gave the Israelites the five books of the Torah. David gave them the Psalms. Psalms. David wrote more than half of them. The exact number is disputed among scholars, but more than half of the hundred fifty were penned by David, the shepherd king, the great the sweet psalmist of Israel, as he 's called. Asaph writes another twelve. The sons of Korah write twelve. Solomon is noted with writing two, and then you have one each by a guy named Aton. My youngest grandson is Aton or Ethan. Uh, He-Man, which is one of my favorites. He's a master of the universe, so he wrote a psalm. <laughs> and then you've got Moses, who wrote Psalm 90. And that makes up all of the human writers of these very personal, uh, very experiential psalms. I, I want to tell you something ahead of time. Lesson, I praying before first service. He prayed something, and it locked in where my heart was going with all this. And I'll share it with you right now. And that is that God is not to be studied He is to be experienced. And that's been the whole point of the revelation of Jesus that we went through over all those nine months was the experience of Jesus. Not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him. Having that personal interaction and relationship where you're real with Him because you know He's real with you. Jesus Christ is the experience of God. And for us to experience God in a very real way, not as some esoteric theology, Not as some intellectual exercise. But to experience him in a real relationship. David did. That's why he's called a man after God's own heart. And so the Psalms were produced. The Jews call these the Sefer Tehalim. Which literally means the book of praises. Because no matter how high they soar or how deep they dive. You read through the Psalms and 149 of these. So one exception. All end with praise to God. Or contain praises to God. They're songs of worship. And it's ironic because you'll be reading some of these psalms and going, man, how much much more dark can this get? And you think, none more dark. I mean, this is a dark, and then all of a sudden, but praise the Lord. Thank God that He is in His holy temple. Only one psalm ends with no resolution of praise. Psalm 88. We're going to look at that later in the summer. But these psalms are beautiful. Praises to God. We call them psalms, which doesn't mean praises. Psalms is from the Greek word psalmos, which comes from the root word solo, which means to pluck, snap, or twang. I find it interesting that uh, Kanye and uh, and his wife... What's her name again? Beyonce. No, it's not Beyonce. That's the other guy. Yeah, Kim Kardashian. Why do you know that? I'm just saying. <laughs> Just kidding you, Jeff. He just had such certainty. names. Kim Kardashian. Read about her all the time. No, I don't follow her on Instagram. I won't do that. No, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West named their most recent child Psalms. I wish they knew what Psalms means because they just called their child twang. That's their child's name. Pluck. It's going to be a plucky kid. Because it has to do with instrumental music. Psalms is an instrumental phrase. It means to sing with accompaniment. To sing along with music. The Hebrew equivalent is Mitzmor. And throughout the Psalms, anytime you see Psalm in the heading, it's a Mitzmor of David. It's a song. It's an instrumental accompaniment. So like harp or lyre or lute, electric guitar, whatever it takes. It's stringed instruments that accompany these, these songs. But all of these songs are different. The psalms, while they sing of, and they sing for, and they sing from the heart, they praise, and they pray, and they meditate. Some of these psalms intercede, others teach, others call down curses, which is great if you're having a bad day, but they do all of these different things. It truly is a, a remarkable book that ministers to the heart through the singing of of these psalms of worship. But more than anything else, Paul says this, Colossians 3.16, "...let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all three of which are contained in the psalm, the Sefer Tehillim, they're all here." Admonish one another with these things, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell within you. Where do you go for the word of Christ? We go to the Gospels. Good. We go to the letters of Paul. Absolutely. We go to Hebrews. We go to Revelation. Yes, you do. But you go to the Psalms. Because Jesus is inherent in the book of praises. He is seen throughout. And what's remarkable is the word of Christ in the Psalms prophetically presented there, we not only see Jesus, but we hear Him. We hear Him literally speaking. Whether matching wits with the temple leaders at the age of 12, or countering the devil in the wilderness, or... Simultaneously schooling and stumping the Pharisees and the Sadducees Jesus quoted the Hebrew Scriptures often What's ironic, and I've told you this before Is when Jesus is quoting the the Hebrew Scriptures He's simply repeating what He already said Because the Hebrew Scriptures Come by the inspiration of the Spirit of Christ Through the prophets about the Christ And then Jesus comes along and quotes Himself That's how it works And he is present in all of this. The four most quoted books in the Hebrew Scriptures by Jesus, if you want to note this, are Exodus, which he quotes seven times, and then Isaiah, which he quotes eight times, Deuteronomy, he quotes ten times in the New Testament, which makes that a highly significant book. And then finally, he quotes the Psalms more than any other 11 times in the New Testament, in the Gospels. The Psalms are the most quoted by Jesus. So let me explain to you what we're doing this morning and what we're doing this summer. We have 150 Psalms here. We're not going to get through them all. We will manage over the next 10 weeks between now and Labor Day, Lord willing, to perhaps cover about 20. Well, how do you decide which 20 Psalms to go through? We're going to look at the Savior Psalms, specifically Psalms that are spoken of or speak of Christ the Messiah. So these are Psalms. Now, a lot of the Psalms speak about Jesus. A lot of them indicate Jesus. You'll read the Psalms and say, Wow, that just sounds like Him. And in many cases, that's intentional. But the ones we're going to look at, you will either hear Him directly speaking these words, or these words will directly speak about Jesus Christ without any, unequivocally, you'll read these and say, Wow, that is Jesus. So, you're going to hear sayings like the following. You're going to hear, He keeps all His bones, not one of them is broken. Uh, Psalm 34, verse 20. Or, You are my Son, today I have begotten you, the only begotten Son, as we will read today in Psalm 2, verse 7. Or, Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Psalm 24, 7, one of my favorites. Speaking of the return of Christ, you're going to hear psalms like that. You will hear Jesus Himself saying, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Psalm 40, verse 7. You'll hear Jesus say, Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. You will hear Jesus say, My God, my God! Why have you forsaken me? You'll hear him say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. All Psalms about Jesus, inspired by Jesus, predictions predating the parousia, if you will. The parousia is the the coming, the first coming of Jesus. Songs written a thousand years, fifteen hundred years before Jesus even showed up on the planet and yet spoken by Jesus. And this is like mind rattling to people who have never opened a Bible. Wait, you're saying Jesus talked before he came. Yes. And it's undeniable. 1 Peter 1, verse 10, a verse we looked at a couple of times when we were studying Revelation. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. I love that verse. It's so telling and it's so profound that the Spirit of Christ was telling the prophets to talk about the suffering of Christ and the glory of Christ when it would happen. That's where the prophets got it. And what Peter claims in those two verses, and what we are continually confronted with in the Bible, is that from Genesis to the Psalms, to the revelation of Jesus Christ, the life of Christ is in these pages. So this summer we're going to pause and take a look. We'll get to Genesis, Lord willing. We'll come to that in the fall. I think the timing will be better for that. And and maybe I'll explain more of that as we go along. But Jesus is here. Jesus is here. After His resurrection, He said to the disciples, Luke 24, verse 44, These are My words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And I pray the Lord does the same for us. In fact, Lord, I just ask You, open our minds to understand the Scriptures as You bring them to us this summer in these Savior Psalms. Now, Psalm 2, we begin there. We don't begin with Psalm 1. Some people think that that's kind of a lead-in into Psalm 2. Neither one of them have a a title in the Hebrew. They just begin. But we pick up with Psalm 2. This psalm is quoted seven times in the New Testament. Highly significant to first century Christians. And to a revelation of Jesus Christ. We see this psalm quoted twice in the book of Acts. We will see both of those this morning. We hear it quoted two times in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 and Hebrews chapter 5 verse 5. I'm giving those to you now because I'm not going to refer to them later. And then finally, we hear Psalm 2 quoted three times in the book of Revelation. So this will be familiar to you. This is the Psalm of the Savior Begotten. If I was going to give it a title, that's what i call it. The Psalm of the Savior Begotten. The early New Testament church confirms that David wrote it. It's very clear on that fact, and we'll see that momentarily. But understand, with Psalm 2, while David put it to parchment, while he took up the quill and wrote these words, it's not called a Psalm of David. Many of them are, 73 to 75, somewhere in there, of the Psalms, say a Psalm of David and declare him to be the author. But David, though I believe, though I know he wrote this psalm, is not the author of this psalm, because this is Father speaking. And you need to get that understanding even before you hit the first verse. The first words out of this psalm are God asking a question. God speaking directly. Listen to Him now. This is God saying, Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. I read that verse and I say, Yeah! Why? Look at the world in which we live. It's crazy. Can't we all just get along? Why the fighting? Why the bickering? Why the debating? Why the arguing? Why the constant going after each other? And we see this in social media. and We see it in the, in the U.S. government. And we see it between nations, the contentions. Jesus said it would be that way. He said, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. Matthew 26, verse 4. We should know, we should be aware that the end times, that the last days will be our days of great contention. Because the world is spinning in a rage. It is raging out of control. It is raging in an uproar. And what God asked 3,000 years ago has startling revelance today. Did I say revelance? It has that, but it has startling relevance as well. This is a relevant book to us. And a rebel, re- relevant comment, why are the nations in an uproar? And you could have asked that question this morning. Pop open your news app and read up and go, what is going on? Why? I don't understand. And the peacenik would say, all we need is just to have peace. In fact, that's what people try to put on Israel all the time. Lay down your weapons. We're calling for peace. And in perhaps Benjamin Netanyahu's most famous statement, he said, if the Arabs put down their weapons today, there would be no more violence. If the Jews put down their weapons today, there would be no more Israel. And it's absolutely true. But even as we watch the contentions and the violence and the the anger that continues in the Middle East, we see it throughout the world. The Lord asks the question, why are the nations in an uproar? Your Bible may say, why do the nations rage? That's a good translation too. The word is ragsu in the Hebrew. Why do the nations ragsu? And that word literally means to be in a rage or a tumult. But it's not just a raging against ourselves or a raging between nations or between peoples. This is a rage, as we discover, that is a result, a tumult, an uproar that's a result of plotting and muttering against another. And in this case, why do the nations rage? Because they are plotting and muttering against God Himself. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel. That phrase, take counsel, is literally mutter murderously. So they're devising a way of killing, of fighting against. They, They take counsel, they mutter together against the Lord and against His anointed, His Mashiach, His Messiah, His Christ. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Hosea 11, verse 4. The Lord describes His chains. If you will, His fetters, His cords. Listen to His description. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. And I became became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and I fed them you ever seen those kindergarten classes out for, a, you know, a little field trip, and there's the teacher first, and then you got the kids all lined up, and they're all holding on to a little, you know, string or a cord of some kind? That's the idea. Can you imagine one of those kids, and if you've taught preschool or kindergarten, I'm sure you can, imagine one of those kids letting go, look at me, I'll let go of the cord. What he's talking about here is God has this loving, this loving cord, this loving way of leading forward, of drawing us into a better place that is concerning and careful and and loving and feeding. And he's like, come on, come on, I, I, I got you. I'm drawing you in. We, on the other hand, or this world, are like a drowning man thrashing away. We've been thrown a life preserver with a rope tied to the ship that will pull us out of the thrashing seas. But the first thing we do is we grab a knife and we try to cut the rope. I don't want saving. I'll save myself. That's the stupidity of it. That's what the psalmist is drawing out here. That's what what God is saying. They're saying, let's tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords. It makes no sense. But it's what the rebellious heart does. The rebellious heart says, I don't want any of this, God. I don't want any of Jesus. I don't need your saving. I can save myself as you're going down. It is utter foolishness. It's completely ridiculous. Now, a group of early believers, they recognized this psalm in an event that happened at what we might call the apex of drowning humanity. That moment in time when this rage against the very salvation of God came to a frothing head. Keep your finger in Psalm 2 and turn over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, go get one off the back shelf. If you've got one, turn to Acts 4. You see, while this rage... Is ongoing. And this uproar against God and against Jesus is continual. There was a moment in time where it reached its height more than any other time in history. And again, a little group of believers in the first century, they understood that. You see, Peter and John have been dragged before the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish ruling council. Same exact ruling council that literally weeks before saw to the crucifixion of Jesus. And now Peter and John, as followers of Jesus, as, as proclaiming Jesus there in Jerusalem, after seeing 3,000 people saved and suddenly there's this, this movement and these Jewish leaders who thought they had put down Jesus and the Romans who thought they were done with this Messiah character suddenly see this massive movement take place unlike any that had happened before. And they drag Peter and John before the council. They throw them into jail overnight. Then they pull them out the next morning. And they start to question them. And they tell them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Well, Peter and John can't be shut up. They're like, hey, judge for yourselves. (laughs) Whether it's right or not for you to talk about this, we can't help it. We have to talk about the things that we have seen and the things that we have heard. And do you remember this? The Jewish council looked at Peter and John and they recognized them. They were ordinary, unschooled fishermen. But they recognize them as what? Anyone know? Having been with Jesus. These guys have been with Jesus. That's where this boldness, that's where this passion, that's where this confidence is coming from. Well, in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, it says, When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, that is this little group of of believers... They lifted their voices to God with one accord and they said, I won't even make a joke about that being a Honda, we'll just let it go. With one accord they said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said, Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage and the peoples devise futile things and the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ, Christos, Mashiach, anointed one. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus and when they had prayed the place where they were shaken together or where they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness, awesome, great do we have that kind of boldness today? and if not, why? what's missing here? in our comfortable churches that lacks the kind of boldness we see in them. I mean, they're praying. And what's great is, uh, verse 29, Now, Lord, take note of their threats, they say, and surround us with a hedge of protection. Shut the doors. Hide us. Keep us safe. Oh, we're so frightened, Oh, Lord. Please come to our aid. I think that's the kind of prayer you might hear today. They came after us, Lord, protect us from these things. They didn't want any protection. They said, grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. And when the place was shaken, they went out preaching with boldness. They went out talking about Jesus. They were all the more ready to go, on fire, passionate for the Lord. It doesn't come of political will. That's not what's going to get the church to stand up and, and preach Jesus. It doesn't come of groupthink that we all get on the same page, and it doesn't come out of buildings that can just be shaken. The boldness, the boldness that we need, it comes when the Spirit of God moves in a people to simply open their mouths and raise their voices rather than raging against the anointed Christ, preaching about the crucified Christ. As Paul said, we choose to preach only Jesus Christ and Him. Crucified, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. We know Jesus. We may not know anything else, but we know Jesus. And we talk about Jesus because the Spirit of Jesus has given us the passion and the boldness to do that. And I'm telling you this morning, if you lack the boldness to talk about Jesus, why don't you just ask Him for it? Oh, I don't know if I can do that. Well, you probably can't. But He can. He will give you the opportunity, He'll give you the passion. He'll give you the words. And the disconnect so often for Christians goes between knowing we should and and, and actually doing it. The disconnect is simply saying, Lord, would you get me there? Lord, would you give me the opportunity? Lord, fill me with the understanding. Lord, bring your revelation. Lord, make me bold. Lord, take away my fear. Lord, help me to stand up in this culture that is going head to head with your truth Lord make me bold man when people rage against the anointed Christ you know what God does he just shakes his head look at verse 4 back in Psalms 2 verse 4 he who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord scoffs at them ever wonder what that means I've told you before. This is not a laughter of pleasure or spitefulness. He's like, <laughs> you know, that's not it. This is a laughter of incredulity. He is laughing out of the ridicule of the ridiculous. He's looking at a people who are flailing against him, whether in lifestyle or in actual word and deed, and he's saying, "This, this is nuts. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense." God is not amused. He's bemused by what He sees going on. As if the Lord is saying, you're telling me that you're going to bite the nail-scarred hands that feed you? Really? You're going to deny the thorn-pierced brow that would plead for you? Snub the very blood that was shed for you? You're going to to try and cast that off? (laughs) Really? And so the Lord laughs. Kidner says... It becomes very plain that the only laughing matter is the arrogance itself, not the suffering it will cost before it all ends. And so God laughs in astonished laughter, which quickly turns to holy anger, verse 5. Then He will speak to them in His anger. And terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Zion. The installation of the king. Zion speaks of that holy mountain, truly Jerusalem. Psalm 48, verse 1, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. In the city of our God is His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north. City of the great King. Beautiful in elevation. 2,550 feet above sea level is Jerusalem. It is up higher. When we go to Jerusalem, remember, we always go up to Jerusalem. And to actually be there and to go up to Jerusalem, you hear your ears popping. And you realize the air is a bit thinner because you are up so high. It is beautiful in elevation. And Psalm 50 verse 2 says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. God loves Zion. He loves Jerusalem. Some of us were talking in between services about President Trump And one of the comments made was, man, you know, you know, God has to choose the presidents when you look at President Trump. I mean, it's just, he says who he is, you know, what he does, the things he says. My other friend said, yeah, yeah, he installs our embassy in Jerusalem where it belongs. And he stands strong for the unborn. And, I mean, what other, in fact, Trump said this the other day, what other U.S. president would put up with the stuff he's put up with for the last three years? and still be in office. So whatever you think of him, there's some wherewithal there that's pretty amazing. And he recognizes this, that Jerusalem is where it's at. Mm -hmm. Zion. Beautiful in elevation, and God shines forth from Zion. And he says there on zion i have installed my king that word installed is interesting nasakti in the hebrew and it literally means to pour out which seems a little strange wait i have poured out my king what is that what is that describing pour out it's a picture of anointing this word nasakti in the hebrew means to anoint to pour out that is it's the installation the ordination the inauguration if you will of a king I've done this with my king. I've anointed him there on Mount Zion. And what's happening here in the psalm is it's recalling God's promise to David through the prophet Natan. This happens in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Just listen to this. He says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, God says to David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. You shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Which tells us right there, this is not Solomon, this is Jesus. David, I'm going to establish his throne forever. Son of David, Mashiach, the Christ, Jesus. And yet more and more, doesn't it seem that people are raging against God? Against His anointed Christ, against His King installed in Zion, the world rages against Him. Against basic Christian values. I don't know if you heard about this last week, but in the California State Legislature, there's now a resolution that's been introduced on the floor calling upon all pastors to say nothing that could be determined negative against the LGBTQ community. That if I were a Southern California preacher and I was teaching out of Romans 1, I would be in violation of the law in California if this thing passes. This is where we are, folks. We've already talked about this fact in years past, talked about laws passed in Canada and some pastors in Canada simply preaching what the Bible says in Leviticus or Romans or 1 Corinthians or other places. They're very clear about what is sin and what is not and, and, and how God views all these things. And by simply reading those things, we've seen pastors in Canada go to prison. Welcome to the United States of America. Because it's here. And we're seeing all over the world this anti-Christian. It's like Christians are the idiots. Christians are the outcasts. Christians are the... all oh, those poor, pathetic... What? Why do the nations rage? Because they're raging against Christ. It's not you. Jesus says if they hated you, they hated me before they hated you. the only reason why they hate you is they hate me. And it's a rage against this established king. Let me just remind you of something, brothers and sisters. When all this is going on, when you find yourself a little bit dismayed or discouraged, we have a king. We have a king. He's already been installed. He's already been anointed. He has already been established in Zion as king, and he rules and will forever rule. And so, whatever happens in this next election cycle, which is already spinning out of control, I mean, it, it, doesn't it just get old? You don't even want to know what's going on. The debates and the tweets and the... Blah, 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 and someone's going to get elected, and yeah, who's it going to be, and, you know, and all... We have a king. We have a king. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't be involved. I'm saying don't be dismayed. Don't worry. Don't freak out. I'll tell you one thing. Whoever is installed as the President of the United States next year is going to be the person God has determined. That doesn't mean don't vote. That just means vote, but don't be dismayed. And trust God. And believe that we have a king. In fact, the Bible tells us in Revelation 19.16, remember this? On his robe and on his thigh are a name he has written. King of kings and Lord of lords. He's already installed. And this installation, this anointing of the king upon Zion, my holy mountain, verse 6, is not a future thing. It is past tense. It has already happened. He is already the king. question is, do you follow him? Verse 7, suddenly we hear Jesus speaking. Okay, he's responding. As the Father says, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. Jesus responds, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Now, literally, technically, it, it should read, I will surely tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Now, that's not very different, but it's a little more emphatic. Here's the decree, Jesus says. God said to me, Today you are my son, I have begotten you. Jesus speaking. This is way too big to be David speaking. The installed king, the son of the living God. This is the only begotten son of God, Jesus Christ. Now note this, today I have begotten you. This is one of the most important verses to understand in all scripture. So don't miss this. I have begotten you. The word begotten in the Hebrew can mean beget. It can mean to give birth to. We see that word, we see the word used a lot when so and so begat so and so begat so and so. It's the same root word that we see here begotten. But it also means to bring forth. Today you are my son. Today I have brought you forth. Keep that in mind. Because in an obvious swipe, at Christianity and Judaism, both the Quran says, God is not begotten, nor does he beget. It's a blasphemous phrase because it denies so much in one simple sentence. God is not begotten, nor does he beget. It's inscribed in, scrawled, uh, in, he, in uh, Arabic atop the dome of the rock. God is not begotten, nor does he beget. Well, if God does not beget, explain to me how we got here this morning. If God does not beget, explain to me how you live. How you are alive. How you came into being in the first place. You see, the Quran denies creation. God does not beget. Well then... How did we get here? Genesis 2-7 tells us, The Lord God formed man of the dust of ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. How? Begotten of God. God begets life. God brings forth life. And he didn't just do it with Adam, and then with Eve. He kept doing it. He never stopped doing it. Psalm 139.13, You formed me in my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to You, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are Your works, and my soul knows it very well. God brings forth life. And yet in 2018, Planned Parenthood performed 332,757 abortions just in 2018. More in 2018 than they did in 2017, which was more than they did in 2016, which was more than they did in 2015, and if you track this back over the last decade, they're all well up over 300,000 a year by Planned Parenthood alone. God begets life. We have no right, no right to get in the way and try to stop that, to to take it away. The life versus abortion debate, and I know I've mentioned this before, but we've got to understand, this is not a political debate. I don't care if you're Democrat or Independent or Republican or Green Party, I don't care if you're a socialist nut. It doesn't make any difference. This is not a political issue. This is a personal issue. This is a life issue. God begets life. It's not about your opinion or your personal rights. It's about what He does. And the Bible is absolutely clear. We exist because God begets life. Well, the Quran doesn't get that. God does not beget. Yes, He does. The Quran also forsakes Christ. Not only forgets creation, it forsakes Christ, saying, God is not begotten. And the idea there was Muhammad writing against this idea of the begottenness of Christ, that Christ is God. God is not begotten. Well, Psalm 89.27 says, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My firstborn. And the indication throughout the Hebrew scriptures that Messiah would be born into the world is clear. And then along comes Jesus. Let me just read this to you. It may be familiar. I know it's not Christmas time, but you've got to hear this. <laughs> Luke chapter 1, where the angel comes, Gabriel comes to Mary. And he says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Luke 1, verse 30. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Well, Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Let me just ask you a question. When did life begin for Jesus? See, part of the whole abortion debate circles around that. When does life really begin? I believe life begins at conception. Others say, no, no, it begins later. It begins when the baby takes first breath. Or it begins when the heartbeat is actually hurt. It begins all these other times. The problem with all the other guesses is they're guesses and they're not based on anything. When did the life begin for Jesus? Now, you might say, well, He, he always existed, right, Rick? Because He's God. So it's a trick question. I understand that. When did human life begin for Jesus Christ? It tells us the Holy Spirit. Implanted this seed, the holy seed, in Mary at that moment, which is parallel, brothers and sisters, to the moment of conception. Jesus is the example. Life beginning right then, right there. Now, for you Bible scholars, listen, holy child... Because he speaks further. He says, for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. That phrase, Holy Child, is very significant. In the Greek, it's Hagion, which means holy. Hagion, Gnomenon. Gnomenon means seed. The Holy Seed. This is referring all the way back. So the angel speaking to Mary, referring all the way back to the story in creation at the fall. Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. The Hagian Gnomenon, the holy seed. Her seed, he shall bruise you on the head. And you shall bruise, bruise him on the heel. And we looked at that verse recently. It's called the Proto Evangelicum, first gospel, first time. There's a hint of a holy seed coming into the world that's going to destroy the devil. Is spoken in Genesis 3:15. And so, from Genesis to the Psalms to the Gospel to the revelation of Jesus Christ, Jesus is revealed. There are 66 books in the Bible. One revelation. The revelation of Jesus. And so, what the Quran does again in this whole idea that God is not begotten, nor does he beget. Well, we're told here, today you are my son. Today I have begotten you, Psalm 2 7. So, clearly, the Quran misses it on the point of creation, misses it on the point of Christ Jesus himself. But finally, and get this because a lot of believers miss this one too. The Quran fails to comprehend. Psalm 2. To comprehend, to even understand. Now, let me explain this. So stay with me. We just read that Jesus came into the world by the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. Okay, understand that. But something that Muhammad and other false teachers try to ignore when they deny that virgin birth of Jesus, when they say God is not begotten, what they fail to comprehend is that His begottenness That is, the day that Jesus was officially brought forth as Son of God did not happen in a manger in in Bethlehem. It happened in a tomb in Jerusalem. Do you understand what I'm saying? The begottenness of Jesus was not His birth. The begottenness of Jesus was and is in His resurrection. How do you know? Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And turn in your Bibles quickly over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. No, I'm sorry, Acts 13. Skip 4. Acts chapter 13, where we come upon Paul in his first missionary journey giving this incredible, remarkable sermon. It's one of the first in a series that he would give and in all the letters of Paul, but it's profound in its statement. Listen to what Paul is saying to his Jewish brothers. Acts chapter 13, verse 26, he says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he might be executed. And when they had carried out all that had been written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But, verse 30, God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Jerusalem, or from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And listen, Paul says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm You are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul connects that. It's not the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. It's the resurrection of Jesus outside Jerusalem. That's the day of the begottenness. That's when Jesus fully became, brought forth Son of God. Inaugurated Son of God. Anointed, installed Son of God. When did God install His King on Mount Zion? When Jesus resurrected from the dead. When he walked out of the tomb, that was ordination day for the Son of God. That was begotten day for Jesus. Paul says, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will surely give you, or I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, Isaiah 55. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not undergo or you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay, Psalm 16. We're going to cover that on Wednesday night. For David after he had served that the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. David's tomb is in Jerusalem to this day. David is A mess in his tomb. Decayed, rotten, but Jesus never underwent decay. He came out of the tomb, the only begotten Son of God. Understand that, because a lot of believers continue to miss this. That the resurrection is the begottenness of Christ. It's not that somehow he was born and came into existence. No, he was pre-existent. We know that. But it was the inauguration, the installation of the King. The Savior's crowning moment was when He was brought forth, installed and anointed King of Kings. And He is today. And He has been for 2,000 years. And one of the things that allows Christians to walk with our heads held high in confidence and boldness in this world is our King is already installed. Now yes, it's true, He has yet to come to rule and reign here. But we have a king and we know our king and we trust him. Back in Psalm 2 verse 8, As for me, Father says to Son, to installed king, As for me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. When did Jesus hear that? On the day of begottenness. Jesus knew. The promise of the father now what's interesting is the devil comes along and he says you know if you would just fall down and worship me i'll give you all the kingdoms of the world matthew chapter 4 read the story he took jesus up on the high mountain he said look at this all the kingdoms they're mine i'll give them to you if you will just worship me and jesus dismisses him outright go satan For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. We looked at this recently. How can the devil offer such a thing? All the kingdoms of the world. Because they belong to Him. Because He is the ruler of this world. He is the God of this world, the New Testament tells us. He's the one who has usurped authority. And so all the kingdoms of the world, commandeered by evil are here offered by the devil to Jesus in that temptation as a fast track to domination. You can be king right now. The devil's familiar with all the king talk. Familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. Knows that Messiah is supposed to be king. I'll make you king right now over the whole world. Just worship me and we'll work a deal here and you can then start your ruling. Jesus knew better. Jesus knew how to come to His rule. Jesus knew, and I think this is ironic because as Satan is you know spilling his stupidity, as he's trying to tempt Jesus in this, what he didn't know is Jesus has already heard this. Jesus already knows what the Father's plan is. He's already fully aware of the process through which He must go. And so Jesus would only receive this His Father's way. I got to thinking about that this week, and I think in all of our lives, there are days, there are moments, there are times where we really want to have some authority. We want to be seen as in charge. We'd like someone just to listen to what we have to say. Look, this is the way I want to do this. And, And there's a way to gain power and to gain authority in this world. In fact, there are really two ways to gain power. One way, the devil's way. And Satan's way of gaining power, of gaining control, of getting authority over a people or a situation or a job or whatever, the devil's way is always others trampling. It's always expedient, it's always immediate, and it's always temporary. It does not take others into account, it steamrolls. That's the devil's way to, to become the boss. God's way to win power and authority is always self-sacrificial. It always puts those that you would be in authority over, it puts them first. It's altruistic. It's it's patient. God's way is willing to wait. It's one of the toughest things that we deal with in our lives is wait for Him to make right what needs to be made right. And God's way is permanent. Well, Jesus will wait for God's way. Verse (laughs) 9 Verse 9 says, You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Now that sounds pretty dominating. Doesn't it? Jesus isn't into world domination, but He will have world dominion. He's not into bossing it and lording it over, though He will be Lord and He is King. His way is completely different. But you come to verse 9, and you got to work this out. You shall break them with a rod of iron. That sounds a little heavy-handed. Well, we come to this verse which we have already looked at in the final uh, three times that it's quoted. Psalm 2 is quoted three final times in the book of Revelation. And we looked at all three of those. The first one was Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Revelation 19:15 He will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the almighty. He will rule them with a rod of iron, but we already learned this, let me repeat this in our studies, that this is the unbending staff of the shepherd. And in fact in the Hebrew, you can just as easily translate you shall break them with a rod of iron can be translated you can you will shepherd them with a staff of strength. See, the word that's translated break is the same word for shepherd in the Hebrew. You will shepherd them with a staff of strength rather than you shall break them with a rod of iron. What's the difference? Well, the difference is whether or not the sheep are following. See, those who follow, the shepherd's staff is strong and comforting and encouraging and protective and safe and secure. Those sheep who would go head to head with the shepherd, they're going to get shattered. They're going to get their heads knocked. You shall shepherd them with a staff of strength. Bible students, the word for rod, note this, is very interesting. When he says you shall break them with a rod of iron, the word is shebet. And the first time we see this word used in the Bible, the first mention of the word rod or shebet is in a very interesting place. Genesis 49.10. "...the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples." The scepter, the shabat, the shepherd rod, the ruler's rod belongs to Jesus, and He will shepherd with unbending authority. But again, who will He shatter? Because even if you translate, "...you shall shepherd them with a staff of strength," How do you deal with the last half of the verse? You shall shatter them like earthenware. Who will he shatter? Listen, it's only those who are foolish and vain enough to headbutt the shepherd's staff. You can follow, you can trust, you can be secure. Or you can be a nation in uproar. Or you can rage against God and try to go head-to-head with His rule. And the reality is, as arrogant as we human beings can be, we are as, as fragile as earthenware. We break. The strongest among us will face a finality of life. This flesh is fragile. I know this full well. I, I took it off right now because I didn't want it to be a distraction, but I'm, I'm wearing this thing. Because I broke my finger. And I'm not happy about this. I broke my pinky finger last year in Israel, and it's, it's all healed up. It's working great now. But now I've broken my index finger on my right hand. And you might say, well, Rick, how did you do this? You're not even going to believe it. I woke up. I broke my finger in my sleep. I'm not kidding. I am not kidding. It's unbelievable. I woke up Thursday morning, and I'm like, ow! Ow! And my finger's all swollen, and it's got all the marks of the break. I mean, I guess it's possible it could be a bad sprain, but I did something to it that I didn't remember. I just woke up, and all of a sudden, I'm in pain. Earthenware bodies, my friends. These are not made to last. I'm getting old and brittle, and I'm only 54. Unbelievable. I'm going to take this off just because it's bugging me. We are earthenware vessels. Can we get that through our thick but fragile skulls? We are earthenware vessels. It just kills me when I hear people say, Christianity is a crutch. Yeah, and you're lame. (laughs) That's the whole point. Can you admit that you need a Savior? Can you admit that you can't get yourself into eternity on your own? Can you admit that your body will at some point fail you? If it hasn't already. See, that's the whole point. We're earthenware vessels. And if we try to go head to head with God, we will be shattered. He'll wipe us out. But He doesn't want to. That's not the point. He stands there with the shepherd's staff not to attack, but to lead. And to love. And to gentle us into our eternal home with Him. The earthenware must put on the eternal. Paul put it this way. 1 Corinthians 15.53 This mortal must put on immortality. And you know, with that, i got to remind you of this, something even more amazing is on the table that we see in this very verse. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them with earthenware. Check this out. The third time that we hear this quoted in the book of Revelation. Is all the way back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 27, where it is offered to the overcomer. Now, now get this. If you haven't already, Revelation 2.26, Jesus says, He who overcomes And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. Also, as I have received authority from my Father. Do you realize what Jesus just did? He who has the shepherd's staff, he who has the power and the authority, the anointed king says, hey, want to be on my staff? Get it? My staff. He invites you. Okay, that was really sad. (laughs) He invites you, listen, seriously, to be on His staff, to be on His team, to be in His government. He doesn't just say, come follow my staff. He says, I want to hand it to you. I want you to rule. I want to give you authority. Jesus not only wants to save, but to share His begotten authority with you. He's going to glorify these earthenware bodies for an eternal reign with Him. And I just think that's marvelous. That's what we spent the last part of Revelation looking at. We get to rule with Him in the Millennial Kingdom for a thousand years. And then it's not over. Then we get to join Him in the new Jerusalem on into eternity. We continue to rule and reign with Him. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I guarantee you we're not going to be bored. We're going to walk with Him. And so Psalm 2, verse 9 is a promise not only to Jesus, but through Jesus to you if you'll just follow Him. Wow. And what do we do with all this? Let me close with the last three verses here. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. You might say, be wise... And be warned. Be wise and be warned, O kings, O leaders. That word judges there is also translated leaders of the earth. I read that and I was reminded, Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. We just saw my big fat Greek wedding the other night again. Love that movie. (laughs) And the scene where, you know, the wife says, The man is the head, but the wife is, she is the neck. And the neck can turn the head anywhere she wants, right? You've heard that. Hey, God is the one who turns the direction of the life of anyone who leads anyone. Proverbs 21, verse 2 says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. And so this idea of anyone in authority, oh kings, oh, judges, oh, leaders, man, be wise, be warned. If you would lead anyone... And you would lead anyone well? This is a word here to... Prime ministers and presidents and parents. Husbands and wives and bosses and teachers... And youth workers and friends. Anyone that you... Every one of you will lead someone. Every one of you already does. Whether you're leading a friend... Or you're leading a child... Or you're leading someone in a class... Or at work. Everyone leads someone. Hey, if you would lead well... Be wise... Be warned. How? What do we do? Verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. That is such a powerful word. Rejoice with trembling. Worship with reverence. It's not either or. It's both and. It's one of those marvelous pairings in the Bible. Kind of like grace and truth. Like we don't deny the one for the other. Too much truth and you're hard-headed too much grace and you have no foundation well in this case rejoice, worship praise with trembling with reverence again not either or we need both rejoicing without trembling that's what the world does rejoicing without trembling produces vain meaningless empty headed frivolity party D let's go on Let's have, yeah it's fun time we're going out tonight we're just going to have fun is gonna have fun, you know. Girls gotta have fun. I know that's an 80s throwback. I just heard it the other night with Naomi. <laughs> girls just wanna have fun. Let's go out, let's have fun, let's have a good time, and it's meaningless. Still gotta wake up and go to work. Still still gotta deal with life. Oh, but we just gotta have fun. Great, the fun's gonna get it's gonna run out. Rejoice with trembling. Worship. So even the direction of the rejoicing and the worship, it's Godward, but but do it with trembling. See, Jesus said, This is the state of the world before my coming. Matthew 24, 37. In those days, uh, it'll be just like the days of Noah. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah came and, and entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. And so will the coming of the Son of Man be. What is he saying? He's saying people are going to be engaged in empty headed rejoicing with no trembling, no sense no profound holy fear just rejoicing it's no good but on the other hand trembling without rejoicing develops dark grumpy self-involved religious anxiety (laughs) don't rejoice just tremble trembling before the Lord sometimes our churches we see that man lighten up praise the Lord worship rejoice with trembling you need both. Proverbs twenty eight fourteen says, How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So you don't just fear, because if you only fear, if you only tremble, you're just going to get hard and anxious. But if you only rejoice and party, you have no substance to your rejoicing. No, we do both. We fear God. With trembling, we rejoice with great joy in the Lord. And verse 12 says, kiss the Son. What? What? No, my, my verse says do homage to the Son. That sounds better. No, it's kiss the Son. The word is specifically nasaku. In Hebrew, nasaku. Sounds like kiss. Nasaku. Kiss the Son. But it's a reverent Kiss. It's a kissing of the hand as a vassal kissing the hand of a sovereign. As a a servant kissing the hand of a master. Or even the word is used like a puppy licking the hand of its master. You kiss the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Now stick with me a moment longer here. I don't like the sound of an angry God. A lot of people don't. A lot of people want to dismiss the Old Testament God and just look at Jesus. And you all understand, there's no difference. There's no such thing as the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. There's just God. Just Jesus Christ. The full representation of the Father. And so, when we see God angry, i got to ask you this question. Does He not have the right? Does a parent not have the right... To be angry when a snot-nosed little brat is talking back? None of my kids are that, but I'm saying. Does he not have the right to be angry at what he sees at the raging of the nations against him and against his anointed one? Now, listen, God has the right to be angry at this world simply because he's the creator. Just as the sovereign God, our maker, the eternal one, he has every right to look at puny man and go, you've got to be kidding me. I'm am... seeing. Be thankful that I'm not God, because this world would be a marble in my hands. Now he's like done. <laughs> he has the right because he made everything. He could bump us off if he wants to. He could end it now. He has the right to be angry more than any other being who ever existed. God has the right to be angry with this world. But you know what he did? He gave up all his rights. He came from heaven to earth. He went from earth to the cross. He gave up every last personal right that you might be saved, that I might be saved. He took the raging sin of the world on his back at the cross. And now I ask you the question does he have the right to be angry? When people don't do homage to the Son, when people don't fall before Him, when people don't receive the loving leading of a Savior, these are Savior Psalms. This is a Savior book. The message of the Gospel is all about the saving of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. And don't forget, this is not an historical account. When we read Psalm 2, this is not an historical count, it's a prehistorical prophecy that David penned a thousand years before Jesus came, before Jesus was begotten, brought forth as the Son of God by His resurrection, proving once and for all that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so the psalm beautifully ends, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Kidner puts it this way, and I think it's a beautiful quote. He says, there is no refuge from Him, only in Him. There is no refuge from Him. There is only refuge in Him. And so Psalm 11 says, Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. I don't know about you all, but this summer, <laughs> I could use a little rest. you tell you how this all came about. I was looking at Genesis. I was thinking about Genesis. I was ready to go with Genesis, actually. And I know several of you went out and bought new Bibles just to start Genesis. Way to go. <laughs> You're going to have to wait two more months. Because as I, as I studied, and, and most of the first teaching for Genesis, it's done. It's like sitting there on my computer, but I'm looking at it, and I'm, and I'm praying about it. I, mean, I, I just don't. And I, to be completely honest with you all, I said, Lord, I don't know. I don't know if I've got the heart to go into Genesis right now. Not sure. See, we came out of Revelation, and that was that was mind-blowing. I, I, it didn't even have to be for you, but for me. See, what we talked about on Sundays and on Wednesdays in, in here and how we got into the Revelation and, and how awesome and overwhelming. Man, all that's all I did. I ate, drank, and slept Revelation for nine months. And I was in my office and, and staff probably thought I was nuts. I don't know if you guys could hear me in there. Whoa! No way! I didn't see that before. Oh Lord, should I talk about this? Wow! And I'm just talking to myself. Crazy Pastor Rick. <laughs> but I got done with it all and I, and I closed my Bible that final Sunday morning. And I talked to a few people and then I headed out the door and, and I went I sat down in my car. And I, I kid you not, I just sat down and I went... And I just took a moment. I said, Lord, yeah, it's just you and me again. Here in the car. And I, you know, I'm I'm just this kind of guy. But I, I sat and I thought about all the times that of all the teachings over the years and everything, and how I, I would finish and, oh, oh, hey, oh, you can say that. And then I go sit in my car and it's like, just me and Jesus. Same with you. You walk out the door, and guess what? Church is over. It's just you and Jesus. It's just you and the Lord again. But anyway, all that to say I I got through Revelation and it was so intense and it was... I loved it. I really did. It's still my favorite book to teach. But I was tired. I was a little weary. And I I was just praying about that. Lord, so I'm not sure if I want to go from Revelation to the other bookend, Genesis, and start right now. It's, It's big stuff and it's a big deal. And the Lord just led me to the Psalms. I started reading And I'll put it to you all this way. This summer, I think we need to lie down in green pastures. And I think we need to be led beside quiet waters. And I don't know about you, but I need my soul to be restored. And so we're in the Psalms. And not just the Psalms, but the Savior Psalms. To experience Jesus, to be led by Jesus, because I know of no more restful place, no greater refuge, than to be with the Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to do. Does that sound good? Yeah. Let's pray together. Father, I just ask that You will bring rest into this place. And that You will build us up, Lord. Even as a brother said to me this very morning, we come here to be built up so that we can go out and be strong. As so, the Lord, I ask for Your rest, for Your shalom. I pray for a short season here, Lord, of Shabbat for the Bridge Fellowship. I ask that You would lead us beside those quiet waters. That You will reveal to us the heart of the Savior. That You will lead us gentle and lovingly. And You'll show us more of Yourself. And Father, would You heal the wounds? And Lord, for the minds that are just spinning with all the insanity of this world, would You bring us peace? I ask that You draw us into Your presence and we would come to You, those of us who are weary and heavy laden, because You said You would give us rest. Lord, may we take Your yoke upon us, for You are meek and gentle of heart. And Lord, right now, I pray by your Holy Spirit you would pour out peace over this fellowship. Over myself, Lord. Over my brothers and sisters. That we would not strive. That we would not be anxious. That we would not dread or fear or worry. But we truly would stand before you as sheep to be led by the Good Shepherd. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. And thank You for a message that reminds us that You established Jesus to be our Savior. In Jesus' name, Amen. I don't know if He is your Savior. I I know for many of you He is. But for some, maybe not. Maybe you still think you're your Savior. Boy, I hope He changes your mind. Because you're not going to get yourself out of this life without Him. And He loves you so much. God absolutely loves you. It's why He spoke the second psalm. It's why He came in the person of Jesus, and it's why He died before He was raised begotten, before He was installed king. He offered the sacrifice. And that's for you and for me, and anyone who trusts the name of Jesus. So if you've never given Him your life, if you've never accepted His lordship, I invite you to do that this morning and come up and pray with any one of us to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. And if you have any other prayer needs in your life, as you know, brothers and sisters, this is a time of ministry. Please come and we'll pray together and let the Lord lead us. Let's stand together and sing.